Welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. I'm your host, Ben Plumley, and this is a podcast about global health and human rights. This is a series brought to you in partnership with the Bay Area Global Health Alliance, a group of companies, both biotech and tech, as well as other sectors, academic institutions and nonprofits, all committed to improving the lives of people around the world. You can find out more about them through their website, which is www.bayareaglobalhealth.org. Well, in this episode, we are going to meet again Professor Peter Piot, who is the Executive Director of the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. He is one of the leaders in the global fight against AIDS, and more recently, he's been in the press as a survivor of COVID-19. And he's testament to the fact that the recovery process for COVID-19 can be a long and arduous thing, not something that magically disappears. Anyway, Peter joins us from his home in London as both he and I prepare for the virtual AIDS 2020 and virtual HIV 2020 conferences about to kick off. Peter, welcome to a Shot in the Arm podcast. Yeah, good to see you, Ben. Even though it's thousands and thousands of miles, who could believe that just over a year ago, we were at the Commonwealth Club with Professor Larson talking precisely about this, how to prepare for future pandemics. Would you have imagined that this is what it would be like just a year later? Well, the irony is that for at least five years, I've been going around the world giving a talk uh, with as a title, Are We Ready for the Next Pandemic? And the conclusion was no. That was the answer. Um, and um, so I was convinced that this would happen, um, but I was um, wrong on two fronts. One, uh, the, I thought it would be a, a, a variant of uh, influenza virus, so uh, some kind of new flu. And it's a coronavirus. Okay, that's a technical detail because it was going to be a respiratory virus. And secondly, um, I think I had um, underestimated the uh, enormous societal devastation that uh, uh, it would bring beyond the public health part. That's... Uh, you know, because that's unprecedented, what we're seeing, at least in modern times. We've seen that uh, in, uh, with the plague in the Middle Ages and later on in other epidemics, but in modern times. So that uh, is something I hadn't thought through. But, uh, but yes, I mean, and I was not the only one. Anybody dealing with epidemics had said, you know, one day we will have this. And, and this, even this may not be the big one. Mm. This could be a rehearsal for something with a much higher mortality. I mean, it is very contagious, and that's still something that is not appreciated, but it suffice to look at the figures, and uh, we know that uh, it is spreading like wildfire. Oh, yes, and certainly over here at the moment, we, uh, we, aren't, we aren't through our first peak, but our first spike, but th this has affected you very personally as well, uh, and it's been... Intriguing, perhaps not surprising, given your heritage in the fight against AIDS, that you've been very open. You've come out about uh, being infected and living with COVID, and you've shared your story in the New York Times and elsewhere. And and I I wonder whether your whether that legacy of fighting AIDS, fighting stigma and discrimination, made you say, I I need to be public about this. Did that affect you in any way? Well, I definitely was influenced by the fact that I'm part of the AIDS movement. 
Um, first of all, I, of course, I'd never been seriously ill in my whole life. It was a real shock that uh, for the first time a virus got me and not the other way around. Uh, so I thought maybe in, in my uh, try to keep some humor and I said the virus got me now. It's the revenge of the virus. And um, it's particularly the experience of um, the aftermath of the acute episode when I was in the hospital and uh, I got over that thanks to oxygen and so on. Um, and that, uh, okay, that was something that I thought would happen. And uh, although I was very scared to, to end up in intensive care and die, but um, what I was not prepared for is a, like months of recovery and of complications. I had a chronic lung condition, so it, uh, you know, due to the uh, inflammatory response of the body, not directly the virus. And uh, it's only then that I developed shortness of breath ironically um, and uh, and I'm still uh, three and a half months later um, I'm still not 100% I mean I'm much much better I resumed working I I go jog in the morning and so on however uh, you know for those who know me you know that I'm kind of a night owl and uh, stay up very late but uh, today you know I go to bed at nine or ten and uh, I'm really tired so it's it's really a virus that penetrates into every single cell of your body and it's then uh, when I got this chronic condition that I uh, and when I was contacted by two journalists independently a Flemish one because they want to highlight um, you know how important COVID is uh, in, in Belgium where I'm quite well known and then uh, Donald McNeil from the New York Times first I said why would I do this you know um, you know, I just, uh, I'd like to talk about uh, what to do about the epidemic, not about myself and who on earth would be interested in, uh, in just in my story. But then I thought two things. One, uh, as you mentioned, I'm, you know, I'm from the AIDS movement and uh, the, the personal stories and the, the involvement of people living and uh, affected by the condition is, uh, you know, an essential part of how we think and how we act. And then secondly, also, I wanted to show that um, COVID-19 is more than a bit of a flu or a serious flu or 1% of people that's usually said at the same time uh, die. And in any case, they're over 70 and they have underlying conditions. If we were not valuable citizens, and it's kind of what I got really upset about that because it's, um, you know, it's a eugenics. You yes. know, uh, it's a eugenic type of uh, discord. And that's what's happening also in the homes for the elderly, um, you know, for care homes where people have been dying massively. Um, so that's why I also came out and showing that there's a lot in between, in yeah. between a bit of a flu and, uh, and, and you know, dying in intensive care uh, or just on your own. And uh, that's, I think, uh, what we will be facing with uh, also um, with hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people with chronic conditions, sequelae, and so on. And we are not prepared for that. But it's really the, um, yeah, the, the AIDS experience. And, you know, the fact that, uh, and I don't know about the U.S., but in the U.K., it's never about people. It is, you know, preserving the NHS. It is, uh, you know, uh, flattening the curve. It's... Uh, ministers giving lectures about um, 
you know, R naught, the reproductive rate number, and so on. And then, as an afterthought, we're saving people. I said, no, it's about people. And, and I think we have a credibility system problem. If the only uh, official uh, communication is about statistics, saving a system, the NHS, and I'm a big fan, that's, don't misunderstand me, and, uh, you know, and I benefited from it, all for free for our American listeners and viewers, um, being in the hospital and, uh, uh, you know, with sophisticated care afterwards and uh, PET scans and just name it, up to now has not cost me one penny, one cent, um, because that's the National Health Service. But it is about people. And uh, in order to have trust um, in what the government says, in order to you know, comply with their pretty unpleasant type of uh, social measures, uh, you know, we need to understand it's about ourselves, about everybody. It could happen to me. And, and in the US, it's, we, we don't have the NHS, more's the pity, as you say, but uh, we've been protecting the economy insofar as we've been protecting anything at, uh, anything at all. But one of the things that I think your experience is showing us is the need for us to understand the long-term effects of COVID. Um, and, and we've had this sense of, okay, people are in intensive care, they are intubated, they survive, that's it, it's finished. But, but we're beginning to understand that the investment in health that we need for people who have been infected with COVID-19 is actually going to extend much further. And I guess that's part of us also having to deal with a, an infection that we know still very little about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, it's new. Uh, when I uh, went for my second time to the hospital for, you know, for dealing with this chronic lung condition, um, you know, the physicians were trying to figure out what is it, how to treat it, and so on. And now the, the experience is cumulative. We tend to forget that there was a world before COVID. But, uh, uh, you know, if you start counting, let's say, on the 1st of January, more or less, you know, December, yeah, we've known this for six months, that's all. And the experience, uh, the clinical experience is still very limited. But, but it's, uh, it's really accumulating. It's it also, uh, you know, very clear now that, uh, this is, it's not because this is a respiratory virus that it's only a respiratory illness. Yes. You know, that it only affects your lungs. I mean, I had atrial fibrillation. People have cardiovascular problems, kidney problems. Your brain is affected. Um, it's everywhere. Your skin. Um, so uh, that is uh, going to all, uh, put an extra burden on the system. And in addition, let's not forget that because of COVID-19, many people with other conditions, health conditions, from maybe acute ones like stroke or, uh, you know, heart infarct, you know, myocardial infarct, or, uh, you know, needing treatment for HIV, they're also suffering. So the, mm. uh, the cost in terms of lives um, is not only the people who die from COVID directly, but all the others. And we haven't made that really... Uh, uh, we haven't added the, all that up yet. So, and that's typical for epidemics. When you look at also at the economic cost, there are the cost of dealing with, in this case, the COVID pandemic, but also all the effects, people losing their jobs, yes. uh, the economy, and, uh, and, and we need to put that in an equation. So our challenge is to make sure that we bring this epidemic under sufficient control 
so that the economy can run. And that otherwise we're all going to be, uh, you know, drawn in poverty. We're talking, particularly in the UK and the US, of the sort of political failure to to respond to, to COVID. Um, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on perhaps an argument that might suggest that there's been a failure of public health to take the political sting out of the response to, to COVID. I mean, here in the United States, who would have imagined that wearing a face mask would become such a politically explosive issue. Do you think that we in the public health movement could have done things differently? And, and particularly when, and, and you sort of referred to it, when we have to tell the public, we don't know the answer to this question, you're going to have to bear with us. Um, are there things we could have done differently? Well, with the benefit of hindsight, and I, I think that's very important, and, and to be fair also, uh, it's clear that we should have done things differently. Um, but one of the, uh, the biggest challenges for this epidemic is that it's new. In other words, the level of uncertainty is enormous. Um, although I would say uh, it's not um, to that extent that we don't know what to do. Um, and... Um, you know, uh, one of the very important elements when you see there are good stories in, in this also, eh? there's mm. a lot of good news. Uh, plenty of countries have succeeded in bringing down the number of new infections to very low levels. In Europe, take Germany or take Denmark. They acted very early on. They introduced testing and contact tracing on a large scale very early on. And... Um, you know, they uh, have been quite successful. The same thing is true in some Asian countries, particularly those with experience of SARS. Uh, like take Hong Kong. You know, it's so densely populated. Yeah. And they've hardly had any deaths. You would expect that this is a, an ideal environment for an explosive epidemic, and yet it has not happened. But you go there, everybody wears a face mask. Same thing is uh, true in, in Singapore, although then they had the migrant workers in the dormitories. Japan, Taiwan, uh, South Korea. So it shows that it can be done, um, but we were too slow. Uh, that's for sure in the UK and uh, in the US, uh, still too slow and depends on the state. Um, the fact that um, I think the public health officials um, I, it, it reminded me of the beginning, the early days of AIDS. And when we, there was antiretroviral therapy and that people said, no, we can't uh, you know, offer that in developing countries because the health system doesn't work. And we said, okay, but we'll do it, you know. We need to save lives. So, and here, uh, what I heard is that, oh, the capacity is not there for contact and trace. You know, we should have recruited the people. There are so many unemployed people now anyway. Um, put it in place. Um, and also, I would say, in the um, you know scientific community, also problematic. I would say, uh, where uh, sometimes we ask for the ultimate evidence, preferably produced locally, in the UK by British investigators, um, published in British uh, medical journals, uh, and then then we accept it and. There's still no consensus on face masks in Britain, mm. and it's still not uh, compulsory. Um, and uh, but for me, the evidence is mm, enough. You know, there is uh, enough evidence. It's not 
coming from randomized controlled trials on a massive scale. Um, but if we have to wait for them, how many people will die? Yeah. So we have this kind of the best as being the enemy of the good, but ultimately the decisions can only be political. Yeah. That's uh, something that we have to understand. And it's also clear that um, scientists um, need to make sure that they understand what their role is. Our role is advice, making sense of what, you know, is the evidence. But scientists love to, you know, argue with each other. And that's not something that in times of crisis you can do. And one of the problems in the UK has been that um, there are many chefs, you know, there's a uh, a lot of it is uh, the impression it gives, and I'm not in the inner circle in number 10 or, or I'm not on stage or so on, but it's kind of managing by committee. And one of the um, points I've made is in times of crisis, you need a general, someone who's in charge with authority across the government, uh, brings in you know, uh, local authorities for a local response because that's what's needed. Look at now, we have Leicester where there is a, you know, a, an, an outbreak uh, and uh, working with the private sector, with the civil society groups and not just a, um, you know, government bureaucracy that has clearly been unable to um, have rapid, flexible procurement or organized testing. These are issues that uh, could have been resolved. It's not uh, you know, rocket science. It's about coordination logistics communication it's something you've said in the past it's the the management uh of uh, uh an epidemic of a pandemic it's not sexy it's you know it's not someone in a white coat or someone out in the front but it's the logistics it's the the, the basic day-to-day -day getting of it done and i mean here in the u.s you you sort of sense a carving out over the last decade or so of investments in public health um, and, and a lack of central leadership. Um, but you know, you know something is about to change when the governor of Texas requires that everybody has to wear a mask. But one of the other things about you, Peter, is that you are, I guess, uh, I would call you a pragmatic optimist. How do you see <laughs> the, uh, the world adapting to COVID in the coming years? Um, I, I guess we're all going to be wearing masks much more frequently. But um, are there things that you see that we will just sort of incorporate this into the way that we live? Definitely, and, and we have no choice but to do it. But before to that, I think also the, the fact that in many, many countries, investment in public health preparedness has actually gone down over time. Uh, all the money went to care and hospitals and all that. Um, and the irony is that... Uh, there are these uh, rankings of uh, countries, uh, whether they were ready for facing an epidemic, you know, that was uh, were published. And the irony is that the countries that came on top of it, the US and the UK, have kind of some of the worst performance. So it illustrates that it's not about just ticking off boxes. Mm -hmm. We don't have the systems in place that are ready, as countries like in the East, you know, uh, in uh, East Asia have. Yeah. Um, but... And, and I think it's not too, it's not too late um, for two reasons. One, we're only at the beginning of this epidemic. And I think that's a sobering bad news, but uh, it's only the beginning. So um, this time to do better and to learn from our 
successes and failures because both are, have been there in, in, in every country. And also there will be other epidemics too. Yeah. A nightmare scenario would be that this winter, this winter in the Northern Hemisphere, we are having a double epidemic of um, you know, COVID-19 and some new variant of uh, influenza virus. Uh, that, you know, that could happen. Yeah. I'm not saying it will happen or in two years time. So it's at the beginning. And as societies, we need to start thinking about um, living with COVID, just as we are now in societies living with HIV, yeah. where we moved from an epidemic, acute epidemic, uh, slower in the case of uh, HIV, because incubation time is slower and so on, it's longer. And I think for COVID, we'll have to go into the same uh, you know, direction in terms of uh, how we deal with it and how we accept it. And it's about the risk management and it's about harm reduction. Yeah. And it means that we will need a collective behavior change. It's very interesting to, to think, you know, the first time I went to Japan many years ago and uh, I saw people with a, uh, you know, uh, a face mask and I thought, oh, there's people there with paranoia, they're, mm. they're scared of getting infected. I had not understood uh, after I made a comment on that, that this is actually about protecting others. It is an altruistic uh, you know, gesture uh, and, uh, and anybody in, in several countries in Asia, if you have even a, a slightest common cold, you, you know, protect the other community. And, um, and that goes back in the case of Japan to the Spanish flu just a hundred years ago. And, um, and I hope that uh, uh, we will adopt something similar now all over the world. Yeah. Um, some kind of social distancing, I mean, I come from a culture where we kiss and hug and, uh, and shake hands all the time in, in Belgium. Um, but, uh, but probably that's not something that's very smart in, in, uh, when uh, viruses fly, are flying around. Um, well, I so suppose we'll that's, the, uh, that's the advantage of my tribe is that, um, you know, the last thing you would do is hug and kiss your, your family members. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 except when you're drunk. Except anyway. when you're drunk. <laughs> Yes, but in uh, um, no, but I think in in Japan, in India, in Thailand, and so on, you know, the fact that uh, uh, there is a, the way people greet each other, who knows where that comes from? It mm. could come from maybe some old epidemic. Who knows? Yeah. But but I I totally agree with you. We we have to uh, start adopting a you know our change our behavior collectively, long way face masks, even if they're not one hundred percent. You know, if everybody uses it, I think the, the population effect and impact is going to be enormous. And um, we, um, this will also be very important to determine whether um, the outbreaks that are going to happen yeah. as whatever we call it, second wave, third wave and so on, um, will remain limited to a particular neighborhood or city or... Uh, company or school or university um, that will depend on whether we have a collective type of uh, safer behavior uh, plus a system in place that can rapidly detect whether there's a problem where people are infected 
and that means testing and, and, and good mm. information systems at the local level, and then act and, 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 and quarantine uh, without uh, hesitation. Um, and, and we may go back to that kind of uh, pattern for, you know, for, for years. Yeah. Um, but I and, think uh, there's, there's something very COVID. important that you've said there, that the wearing of the mask is not to protect yourself, it is to protect others. And I think that's a message that we've done a really bad job actually here in the United States of, of, of communicating. And um, I, you know, I've seen people absolutely obsessed with uh, Purell and hand washing, but the, the concept of the mask um, as a, uh, a sign of respect for other people um, is something that's been, that really hasn't taken off. One of the other things, Peter, is, you, you know, we're just gonna, you know, the argument would be, we're just gonna hunker down until there's a vaccine. And um, there's been huge enthusiasm and huge investment in vaccines. Um, but but sort of here's the deal from my perspective. We've not done a good job of producing vaccines very rapidly. We Our science doesn't tend to allow us to do that. And secondly, if I'm right, we haven't actually succeeded in developing a, vi a, a vaccine against a coronavirus. So are, are we being overly optimistic that come the middle of the next year, everything will be fine once we're all vaccinated? I'm spending a lot of my time now on um, uh, helping to uh, support the development of vaccines, for example, through uh, CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, and also as a special advisor to Dr. Ursula von der Leyen, she's the president of the European Commission and, and really um, has uh, uh, played a leadership role in mobilizing money for development of vaccines, manufacturing, and uh, you know for equitable access. So I think a vaccine is going to be absolutely essential to um, bring down the, um, this epidemic to levels that are manageable uh, in societies. Um, but I think that the, um, you know, the promises that have been made may be over-optimistic and we may uh, have a big problem of uh, managing expectations here. Um, first of all, um, we need a vaccine that works, that protects. But uh, what's absent from the discussion often is that will it protect to transmission in other words if i'm vaccinated i can't become infected or is it going to protect me from developing a serious illness and 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 dying from it which would be absolutely uh, very very important um, but if it's only the latter then that means that the virus will continue to spread mm. um, you know and um, so we don't know uh, what will happen so it, it, it's unlikely that uh, the, certainly the first generation of vaccines that will be developed uh, will offer 100% um, you know, protection from either infection or uh, disease. So that's the first question. And so we need to demonstrate that this vaccine protects. And that takes time. Yeah. That takes time. You need to test it in uh, randomized controlled trials um, in populations where there is still active uh, virus uh, transmission of the coronavirus uh, it takes some time and um, um, and and it's a moving target also because uh, in in many countries now the incidence is too low to to test it out but anyway we have to to show it's it's uh, protective secondly 
very important, equally important, it must be absolutely safe. Yes. Because with vaccines, we're uh, injecting biological materials in healthy people. And in this case, we're talking about billions of people, not millions, but billions. Maybe four or five billion people in, on Earth will need this or could even be more. Um, and that means that um, you can't afford to not be absolutely certain that this is safe. And that requires some um, extensive um, experience with, the, with these vaccines in various populations from younger to the elderly. And, and by the way, um, many vaccines don't work that well in the elderly and in someone over 70 or 80. And these are exactly the groups in society, the age groups that we want to protect in addition yeah. to healthcare workers and so on. Um, so it has to be absolutely safe. And one theoretical possibility is that vaccines could even enhance uh, infection. Uh, there are some precedents for that, mm -hmm. just as we know for some dengue vaccine. I'm not saying it will happen, but we need to go through that. And then the third problem, let's assume that all this works out very well that there's no problem, which I would be surprised because the average uh, rate of success of development of a vaccine uh, from the first experiments to bring it to the market is way below 10%. Yeah. And it usually eight to 10 years. I'm not saying it can't be going faster and I, I think it can be. Uh, and uh, we need to do everything we can, including, uh, you know, the collaboration of the regulatory uh, bodies like FDA and uh, uh, the European Medicines Agency, and they're on board. But um, uh, we need to be realistic. So let's assume it all goes well. And we are probably the end of this year in the uh, best possible case, although some people have promised hundreds of millions of vaccines for by October. Who knows? Um, I think it'll rather be uh, 21. Then we need to manufacture these billions of uh, vaccines. Again, never been tried yeah. before. It doesn't mean it can't be done, and we, we, I'm sure it will be done. But uh, that's, uh, you know, not for a university or so. That's not an academic problem. That's engineering. It's finding billions of uh, the small glass files to put the vaccines in, the, you know, the injection needles, and so, and so on and so on. Um, and then lastly, uh, let's assume that all that is fine. Then we need to make sure that it can be distributed that it's affordable. And one of the things I like very much of the, um, the initiative that the EU together with, you know, with WHO and, and others like CEPI and, the, you know, Gates and the Wellcome Trust and countries have really uh, launched is um, the insistence not only to produce a vaccine, to discover it, to produce and manufacturing, but to ensure equitable access. And because there's a big danger of vaccine nationalism. Just as we see now the fact that the U.S. government has basically bought up most of remdesivir, yeah. of Gilead's remdesivir, meaning that patients in other countries, you know, are not going to benefit. That's going to cost lives. Can't we have some, you know, better understanding and uh, more equitable uh, access and uh, distribution? It's going to be one of the big political issues uh, of uh, you know of the next decade it's really interesting that the europeans and i i suppose we now have to exclude the united kingdom from that god help us but that the europeans uh coming to the support of who 
and Seppi, sort of, I guess, primarily based in, in Oslo, Norway, are really uh, at the forefront of demonstrating leadership and the need for solidarity and the need for investment. Um, and, and the other voice that um, are obviously very optimistic uh, about vaccines, but um, uh, someone you mentored and then someone who went on to mentor me, Dr. Paul Stoffels from, from J&J, you know, the need that we're going to have to vaccinate billions of people and really to start thinking right now about what it means to manufacture, to scale up, but yes, to make sure that this is um, accessible um, and uh, available equitably. Um, it's it's going to be, it's not the magic bullet that um, perhaps the America First people think we're going to have. It's going to require a lot, a lot of work. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's not a magic bullet. We'll need, like uh, the term we use in HIV, uh, combination prevention. So even if there's a, a vaccine, and I really hope that it'll be there, like say a year from now, um, then um, we will still have to continue to do some, to wear masks, face masks, to do, you know, to have other measures because uh, it's highly unlikely that it will just stop this epidemic magically. And secondly, um, the debate also has started, uh, who comes first? Yes. Who will benefit first? Because let's assume that there are 100 million or 200 million or 300 million doses, but not a billion, uh, billions of doses uh, immediately. Uh, so we we'll need to make some very uh, tough choices. Uh, the logic ones being to protect all those who are in caring, you know, healthcare workers, people who work in uh, home, in care homes for the elderly. Um, maybe the most vulnerable, the health, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something that each country has to decide and where we need agreements. But, um, but sometimes I feel that it's another case of medical hubris to promise uh, that we will fix this epidemic with, uh, yeah, with this technology. Also, I think we need to not neglect um, uh, research into um, therapeutics in, in the treatment. And um, it could well be that, um, you know, um, antiviral uh, treatment uh, becomes available and is proven to work um, a bit faster, uh, remdesivir plus, let's say, and yes. more effective. But, but that also can be used as prophylaxis in, as a, in, a, in a preventive way. Uh, you could imagine that um, uh, any, all the contacts of someone with COVID-19 uh, can you know can be given a, an antiviral drug or monoclonal antibodies that are detective. So um, we, we'll need multiple approaches to bring this uh, under control. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I, I, and then that sort of gets to that balance of making sure the data is is uh, proves the case, but isn't the kind of gold standard that. Um, U.S. or or or, or London-based magazines or journals want you. You remember that uh, you and I were talking just before all this hit, and I was in Cambodia, meeting with um, manufacturers and distributors of HIV medicines and persuading them, and I think largely successfully, the group of us were uh, to prevent them from sending all of these unproven antiretrovirals, yes, including D40, over to China and that they might be used as ARVs, as prophylaxis against COVID. So there's that, that balance between 
um, needing to move quickly, but moving on, moving on evidence, and that that sort of uh, th that sort of hit me so forcefully then and and now, and and I guess that brings us, Peter, and I I, I don't want to take up too much more of your time, but really to HIV, which is the epidemic that has driven your life and has driven my life, um, and. Uh, like SARS-CoV-2, HIV is a zoonotic infection. Um, you know, it, it, it crossed over the uh, animal-human barrier sometime in the 1920s. And, and here we are uh, with a range of pandemics. And, and, um, and I'm hearing some very uh, conflicting things about HIV. The first is that this is an opportunity for us to reframe the debate about HIV. Uh, we're in a world of of needing to uh, build pandemics literacy, pandemics preparation, so we can incorporate HIV into the broader pandemics response. Um, uh, and, and, and then you also see a, a, a sense of almost desperation, um, which I confess is sort of almost where I am, where you see a huge shift of resources away from uh, fighting HIV and into the emergency need to deal with with COVID nineteen, and um, you know, it's the irony of saying this: HIV just isn't sexy anymore. It's a, a disease that um, you can get very easily, but symptoms don't appear for many years. Uh, the fatigue that goes with needing to build a long term response to it is something that you have to fight day in and day out. But but what's your sense? And I know you're going to be speaking at the virtual AIDS 2020 uh, mm. about the AIDS response, and I, I don't want to anticipate that. But but what's your sense of what we need to do? Well, first of all, Ben, the um, COVID-19 has a direct impact, a negative impact on the lives of many people living with HIV because of the interruption of services um, that is uh, not only affecting people with HIV, but uh, with diabetes, just name it. Um, and uh, uh, according to UNAIDS, one estimate, uh, it could lead to an extra half a million deaths uh, because of lack of access to antiretrovirals. And uh, um, so that's a, an, an immediate impact that is not specific for HIV, but uh, we, we need to take into account same thing for uh, people with tuberculosis uh, and so on. Um, but I think that the um, uh, COVID-19 comes at a time when the AIDS movement uh, was already in a crisis and where there's already um, a lot of, you know, of complacency, denial, um, and uh, so this is, uh, it's high time to probably, um, you know, uh, rejuvenate, I would say, the, not only the response, but the narrative to start with, uh, in a world living with COVID and a world living with HIV. Mm. Um, and uh, what uh, I find very uh, disappointing is that, um, you know, the, uh, from the UN to uh, to civil society groups and so on and, and, and professionals that you hardly hear any voice about AIDS. This whole groups, all the people have just only talk about COVID-19. And of course, we need to bring COVID-19 under control also in order to be able to, uh, you know, to deal with HIV. And 
certainly um, when we see 2020 this year um, is one of a, an interim target uh, timeline for uh, the UN and UNAIDS um, targets for, to end the epidemic. We are not there by any means. It's a, you know, and that we can't blame, blame on COVID-19. That was already in the works before. So it's really uh, a mixture of uh, um, you know, limiting the damage of the acute damage, but also um, I would say an, a double incentive to uh, rethink the st strategy. Yeah. The strategy which was entirely, uh, you know, targeted uh, on, um, uh, focused on, on targeting on 1990-90 and that treatment and so on. Uh, and uh, that's clearly not going to make it. Um, we would have made it uh, quite a while ago if that would work. Um, and we need to shift more to prevention, but also connect it with, you know, with issues around COVID-19 and others. I uh, and uh, I think an opportunity is the um, the new UNAID strategy, which will, um, you know, sorry. That's all right. Life happens. Yeah, it's from the US. Who knows? Um, you know, someone is already listening. No. Um, so just I think this uh, we have an opportunity with uh, the uh, new UNAID strategy that's in development. Um, and uh, uh, but if if that is just more of the same, I'm really concerned that um, we will see a reversal of the hard-won gains in uh, uh, of the AIDS uh, response, and uh, we shouldn't forget that millions of lives are hanging the balance. COVID-19 is a very serious epidemic, and uh, I think the official figures are total underestimate. Certainly, yeah. when we think of 10 million people infected. In the UK, um, you know, having access to testing until recently was extremely difficult. I had to go privately. That's the only time I had not have to go to the NHS to, uh, you know, to have a test. Um, um, it's probably well under one in 10 people with the infection are being tested and, and are in the official statistics. Yeah. So we, we probably easily 50 to maybe 100 million people who are infected. However, when you look at deaths, um, let's not forget that there are 600, 700,000 deaths a year from, uh, from HIV every single year. Cumulatively, we're close to 35 million. So uh, that's up to now since the Spanish flu, the biggest epidemic um, in, you know, of our times. And uh, uh, we, should, we should also say that loud and clear. Yeah. And, and, and I'm seeing, I mean, already some of the pre-conferences for the Virtual AIDS 2020 where, you know, some of the um, uh, more draconian methods for making sure people don't meet and don't socialize um, are being used by, um, you know, police and authorities to prevent key populations from doing their work um and interacting and that that's something that we're going to to have to yeah. watch i suppose it gives a a very focused emphasis on a rights-based and evidence-based response to hiv when perhaps we were losing some more of that focus in 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 previous years but yeah that's a good point but i also think always there is an opportunity um and that opportunity is that uh you don't have to explain to most people now why 
uh, dealing with infectious diseases, why global health, why epidemics, uh, why that's important and why we should invest in that. And, uh, you know, and invest in preparedness and, uh, and in, uh, you know, and in community responses and so on. So I, I, I hope that that's something that will not only uh, lead to um, defeating the COVID-19 pandemic, but also helping to bring um, HIV under control. But we need to learn lessons from both of us. And uh, what's common, I think, not only that it's virus, but um, is risk reduction, harm reduction, um, in, in a way that's more realistic than claiming the end is in sight, because the end is not in sight for either. Yeah. Well, th there you go again, being the pragmatic optimist and and sort of giving this a a, a clear a sense of clear of, of what we need to need to do now, uh, Peter. As we as we wrap up, um, you know, you've uh, you've been through the wars, as we would say. How have you kept sane? How have you um, uh, how have you uh, maintained your sense of optimism and enthusiasm? Well, I think that the alternative is much worse. So <laughs> what's the point? Um, and um, yeah, I mean, we should never accept that uh, the unacceptable, the, uh, you know, that people die from treatable conditions or preventable conditions. And uh, uh, for me, that's such a given. Um, it's sometimes hard as an individual to, um, you know, uh, from when I was in charge of your needs and the personal attacks you get and so on and uh, you know but never uh, lose sight of that uh, of a long-term view and of uh, why we're doing this and um, and that we all need uh, together to work together to um, you know to make a difference and to save lives it's uh, for me it's as simple as that well Peter thank you so much for uh, coming onto the podcast again. It's really terrific to, to, to have you here. It's really also wonderful to see. I mean, I realize, you know, there's much more to go, but to see how much of a recover you, recovery you've made, uh, and that's just wonderful. Um, keep up the terrific work and um, uh, lots of love from your family in California. Thanks so much, Ben. Good to see you. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks to Professor Peter Piot. Thanks also to Erica Spera, our producer and director from Newsdoc Media. Thanks also to Brian Ragas, our production manager. As always, you can contact us at Facebook and YouTube at Shot Harm Podcast. And you can find this and other episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Now, have a great week and a safe week. And of course... Don't forget to keep wearing your masks. Thank you.